Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Celebrity Stage Stories with Jerry Strauss. That is me. And uh, of course, Celebrity Stage Stories is brought to you by Edge Magazine. Edge Magazine explores a compelling cultural theme with an intriguing blend of essays, articles, interviews, artwork, and photography, along with interviews with the biggest names in TV, movies, music, and more. We want you to visit Edge Magazine's website for free digital versions of the magazine, exclusive digital content, and a whole lot more at edgemagonline.com. And make sure you follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram today. And speaking of today, today we have got a very awesome, fantastic, stupendous conversation ahead of us because we are talking to not only one of our favorites from the small screen, the big screen, the written word, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She's also, uh, as we just chatted about offline, our very first Jersey tomato on this uh, new edge-fueled version of Celebrity Stage Stories. You know her. Um, I mean, we're going to talk about it. People know you best from so many different, uh, so many different reasons, but uh, you may remember her as Duff from the heyday of MTV, but she is Karen Duffy. She is here. Hi. Hey, man. Hello, everybody. <laughs> thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. Oh, well, thank you for, for being there to be introduced. Otherwise, that would have been a very creepy moment. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I'm so excited to talk to you. And I feel like you're one of those people that have such a diverse background. And you've done so many different things that you're constantly coming in contact with people excited for you and excited to meet and see you for so many different reasons. And it's kind of up to you to figure out how they know you or when they best know you from, et cetera, et cetera. All these years later with everything you've done and everything you continue to do, what do you think people still know and remember you best for? It's interesting, Jerry. Um, MTV was probably, that was my first real job um, on television. And that had such a cultural impact. And so really MTV, and then of course, Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it's interesting, the way I got my start was, uh, I grew up in Park Ridge, New Jersey. And uh, I went to high school with Jimmy Gandolfini from The Sopranos. Wow. And so Jimmy was voted best looking and I was voted class clown. So we always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, we went to. I would have lost money on that bet, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I did all the plays uh, in high school with Jimmy and everybody loved him. And, uh, he, he was, he's just a fantastic guy. But what gave me my skill set, I believe, to work in front of the camera without a lot of experience <clears throat> was growing up in New Jersey. Um, our family had a tradition of service. So I volunteered at a nursing home starting when I was 12. And working with um, people on the memory care unit, people with dementia and Alzheimer's who had a very short attention span. Yeah. And I realized like how I could move my body to make people pay attention, um, how to speak very clearly, have strong, precise elocution, and be able to modulate my voice so I could be heard. Yeah. And then I realized 
MTV is shortening everyone's attention span. This skill set will absolutely work uh, from the nursing home to MTV. So I sent in a video uh, to MTV unsolicited and wound up getting the job. And I think having the confidence of knowing that I was a great recreational therapist gave me the confidence that like, hey, like, People think MTV is hard work. No, try giving, you know, a 300 pound disabled person a bath. Like <sighs> that's tough. So I really felt that my scrappy Jersey roots really kept me going, gave me the confidence and really, I so enjoyed the ride. I want to, I want to just back up a second because for those of us who might be just a tad younger than you and I, um, who may not have lived through the relevance of what MTV was in our culture at that time in the eighties and the nineties, you have to think back to a time before everything was on demand, before everything was streaming when, I mean, honestly, there were just far fewer options as far as TV channels and cable channels and just options in entertainment in general. MTV was not only something that I mean, are an entire demographic lived on, essentially, teenagers, young adults, etc. But also because, I mean, unless you're recording with your VCR on videotape, most of us are watching it live. So it's something that people are watching in droves by the millions every day, afternoon, after school, at night, and all watching at the same time. It was this giant communal thing. Um and you were a part of that heyday. So for you to walk in the way that you did and get that job, first of all, and then live through that and become such a giant star uh, to become Duff, um, it's 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 like a monumental, iconic position that you had earned yourself. Uh, what was it like? I mean, you know, we talk about getting there. But what was that ride like for you? Because I'd have to imagine that you were megastar wherever you went. One of the most recognizable people. I mean, everybody watched MTV. You know, it, it's it's really interesting, Jerry, because I believe that all skills are transferable. So um, having a passion or having practice when you're good at one thing, those skills can carry you in many different areas. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it all happened so quickly that I thought, all right, I just imagine that the minute I get on camera, they're just going to throw <laughs> me right off. And so I thought, so I might as well have fun because who knows how long this is going to last. Yeah. And I probably... I would get like a six week contract, a six week contract, because they weren't quite sure. Mm. And uh, I just figured, oh, this is probably it. Uh, so I was at the Grammys and, um, you know, th these award shows take forever. And so there was a hot dog vendor outside. So I went and bought as many hot dogs as I could carry. And we just started throwing them around uh, Radio City Hall because people were starving. Yeah. And um, afterwards, uh, I was interviewed by Howard Stern. 
And my contract was pretty much over like that the next morning. So uh-huh. I figured ah, I'm going to go out in a bang. <laughs> and Howard Stern interviewed me and I had a great time with him. And honestly, I owe my career to Howard Stern because he gave me a shot on the radio as his guest. There are many people lined up to speak to him, sure. but everybody heard it. And uh, so I'm very grateful. It was a lot of fun. So did that lead to, what did that interview lead to for you? Was that just- They gave me a contract. They gave Um, you a big, okay. Yes, they gave me a big contract for many years. Wow. uh, I was just out the other night uh, with the the man who created uh, MTV. I'm still great friends with the people that I worked with, the VJs, the crew, the executives. Um, Yeah, there's a- I think because we all experienced, we were all about the same age. Many of us from uh, New York, New Jersey, a lot of kids had internships at MTV. And so we were all in the same demographic. And uh, it was it was really a cultural moment. And I was grateful to ride that wave. That's, that's really amazing. I, I have to ask, how did the name... Duff. I mean, obviously we know where the name Duff came from, but what goes, is that a big decision or is it just like. It's what I've always been called. It's in my new book. I talk about nominative determinism, which means that your name has an influence on who you are. So Duffy in Gaelic means clan of the dark haired. It is a, uh, a name from the Western part of Ireland. Um, but, uh, you know, everyone else in my family was named after a saint or a beloved relative. And I'm like, there's no Karen superheroes or rescue dogs. Like, I just really felt like before it became a pejorative, I just felt mislabeled. And so my family calls me Cannonball and or Canny for short. So I've never been called. It's been like never been called my proper name. Ever. It's always been called by my nickname. It's <laughs> amazing. Um, so just to get the, the kind of the, because you, I mean, your career is so fascinating to me just on paper and talking about it is making it even more so, but you, you graduate high school in Jersey, as you said, uh, up uh, in North Jersey. Um, now you go to college and you graduate with a BA in recreational therapy, correct? Mm -hmm. Which is sort of in line with your volunteer work, as you discussed before. So at that point, was your goal, was your thought process that that's the direction you were going to go in? Or were you also keeping an eye towards moving in the entertainment realm at the same time? Well, um, I chose recreational therapy because Um, I love the philosophy behind it where it is you focus on a person's ability rather than what they can't do. Mm. And I think that I don't scare easy and I loved working in clinical settings and I love being useful. Mm. Um, So I was absolutely focused on being a recreational therapist and that's what I was doing. Um, But I, I had to pay back my student loans and I was beginning my life in New York and I was so broke 
that I was just, I, I was, I couldn't afford food that I got so skinny that so they were like, Oh, somebody saw me on it at a bar and said, Oh, you should be a model. And I was like, are you? No, but the guy I was with, um, was, um, an aspiring model. And he said, well, what if I go? And they're like, okay, we'll go together. And we got cast in a Calvin Klein jeans ad. So that was before MTV. So mm -hmm. I had a few opportunities. I started doing commercials, but I always kept my job at MTV because I, I'm sorry, my job at the nursing home, mm -hmm. even when I was working at MTV, I kept that job. I wow. then went off salary and went as a volunteer. And I stayed there until the nursing home moved out of the West Village. Mm -hmm. um, but having, you know, it's interesting. I talk about purpose a lot in my book and having a purpose is having something to love, something to do and something to look forward to. And I really felt that as a recreational therapist and as a volunteer, I really have my purpose. Now I work as a patient advocate. Um, and I feel like I have something to love, which is my life and sharing that gratitude and something to do. I speak to the world through to, to the world through books and as a patient advocate and something to look forward to. There's always a new book or a new project. I'm producing film right now. So it's great. That's it's amazing. And I mean, again, and we're not going to have time to really go in depth on all the different things that you've done, but just looking at your resume on camera or even, you know, behind the scenes, uh, as you alluded to, just some of the things you've done, of course, be, you know, Duff on MTV, um, Dumb and Dumber, of course, an iconic role that just, you know, it, it really brings it to me, it really brings to light the idea of what celebrity really is, which to me, it's, it, it depends on who you ask, because I think there's probably so many more people who've seen you in that role than, I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to think of, you know, your random uh, award-winning movie of the year that quite honestly, only a select few have seen. But when you really talk about what celebrity is, you're talking about generations of people who continue to watch uh, Karen Duffy on Dumb and Dumber and will continue to recognize you for it. Um, now you're, you know, you're a Charlie girl for Revlon. So you're in the modeling game as well. At the same time, uh, you know, within these years, you end up becoming a correspondent for a couple of TV shows that Michael Moore is hosting. Mm -hmm. So you're all over the place in a really cool way because there's such a diversity here. How much of it is, you know, is passion from you interest in going in these different directions versus just your abilities, bringing this diverse palette of opportunities to you and you just wanting to take advantage of all of them. You know, I think you said it, Jerry, you've got to fly when the windows open. Um, I was, uh, on a modeling job in Paris and I don't speak French. And the only movie playing was Michael Moore's Roger and me. Mm -hmm. And I probably went to see that movie five times. <laughs> and I started writing. One of the things, the habits that I have in my life is I write, I write letters, handwritten letters. And I, uh, and I write thank you letters, handwritten. So I sent a, a bunch of letters to Michael Moore telling him how much I loved his film. And then I heard that he was doing a TV show. So then I wrote to the head of the network and to the head of the production company. And eventually they just said, 
we either have to call you in and have you audition, or we're going to have to call security on you. <laughs> but I figured like, like I didn't play it safe. You know, I stuck my neck out. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Like he's going to say no or, um, or call security on me, but I really enjoyed that. And I feel that again, using what I learned on camera, I was able to bring that to, um, TV Nation, and that was incredible. Um, and my first movie was Dumb and Dumber, and it was also Peter Farrelly's first movie. Um, and I helped him, I was trying to get, when I read this script, it was so funny. It was originally called A Power Tool is Not a Toy. And <laughs> it was so funny. I was like, I have to meet this guy. So when we, when we met, we just really connected. And um, a movie uh, that I am an associate producer on right now, filmed in New Jersey, it's called The Greatest Beer Run Ever. Mm. And it is written and directed by Peter Farrelly and uh, produced by Andrew Moscato. And uh, The World's Greatest Beer Run, which will be coming out in September. Mm. And it stars Zac Efron, Russell Crowe, and an ingenue named Bill Murray. So it's a great cast. And uh, it was filmed in um, Vietnam, Thailand, standing in for Vietnam, and um, all over Bergen County. So it was really wonderful that, uh, you know, to shoot on my home turf. That's that. That's amazing. We're going to look, certainly look forward to that. Um, I was going to ask about Bill Murray, actually, because he uh, he wrote a, uh, a bit of a, a comment, some praise for your book um, mm -hmm. and some of the materials. So um, clearly a fan of your work as well. Is, is he another person out there in the ether in the entertainment world that you found a connection with? I mean... He's Bill Murray. I mean, <laughs> he's Bill effing Murray. Um, I just adore him. And he is such a wise, thoughtful dude. Right after Ghostbusters, after he did, I think, Ghostbusters and uh, Meatballs and Stripes, and he was having all the success, he didn't want to become a knucklehead. So... He took off four years and studied philosophy at the Sorbonne. So I love the fact that he's, he, what's so beautiful watching Bill is seeing he just enjoys who he is. And, uh, you know, we've been friends for 30 years and I'm so grateful uh, that uh, he's a big part of our life. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Now, we, we we had to get we have to get to it eventually and you know this is this is a part of your life that certainly fuels a lot of what you do and a lot of the good that you do as well um 1995 um and you're gonna help me with even the pronunciation of this this is how mm -hmm. difficult this is um neurosarcoidosis yes thank you now this is something that you uh, it's discovered that you uh are uh that you have that you are mm -hmm. afflicted with that you are suffering from i'll use all the synonyms yeah um, you know i always think you know it's interesting jerry we often use so many warlike metaphors when we talk about a chronic 
illness. Mm-hmm. Like, we're always like, we're going to battle this. We're going to fight it with these drugs and we're going to blast it with this radiation. Yeah. And I always think I'm a lover, not a fighter. I don't think I want all these warlike metaphors. So I rather than fighting it because I'd be fighting with myself every day, I think yeah. I'm coexisting with sarcoidosis. That's um, really awesome. <laughs> yeah, I just figured I just didn't want all those battling words. I mean, it's they're always telling you, imagine, you know, the medicine coming and defeating and defeating and there's this I don't want a big battle going on in my body. I'm just like, "Hey, medicine, why don't you go take out the sarcoidosis cells? Do what you can do. Do your yeah. best." I, 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 this is going off track a little bit, but that is really fascinating to me because, you know, I am very lucky in that I do not have anyone close to me who is currently dealing with any sort of, well, I I wouldn't even say that. I, I do have people close to me dealing with forms of cancer, but, um, I see. I mean, I, I I feel like the trend over over the course of uh, a certain amount of years is very much almost like a marketing campaign of like the F cancer campaign, right? Where mm-hmm. everyone through social media or whatever the case may be, it's like just this big movement of we're as you said going to war. We're going to project a whole lot of negativity towards this thing that is not like a living thing or a person like it, but it's just kind of giving it a personality and going to war with it. And it always feels very emotionally like unhealthy to me to have that attitude. And I'm not, it, it's kind of hard for me to say, cause I'm not directly dealing with it. Um, but it feels like you're kind of looking at it the same way and that like it's, it's not really doing you any good to harbor this ill will or this hatred that you're just creating to make yourself feel better. Um, I don't know that it necessarily makes you feel better in the end. Like I feel no, like. I think that's a really illuminating perspective, Jerry, because um, the way I look at it is, listen, this disease is, it's incurable, it's, it's treatable, yeah. but it's going to be, I've lived half my life with it. So if I was, I didn't want chronic pain to make me mean. And, you know, I didn't want to be angry. This is the one life I have. And I am so grateful for for it. They say you only live once, but that's not true. You live every day. You only die once. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that I live with chronic pain, I understood that pain is inevitable. We will all feel pain, whether it's emotional or physical, uh, we will feel pain. But I believe that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. I believe that while I live in pain, and it took me a while to get there, but I'm not suffering through it. I understand it's going to be there every minute of the day. And I've got good days and bad days. But if I only worked on days that I felt well, I'd never get anything done. So I slowly and deliberately live my life with a purpose. And again, I just try and make the point of view of I can be useful or useless. And I try to be useful. And even if it's such, if all I can do is just write one thank you letter, then that's a useful thing I've done. 
just to give people a little bit of background who may not be super familiar with this, um, how did it start? Like, was this a, a sort of a gradual thing for you or was it just one day suddenly these symptoms were, were in effect and, and it was just on from there for you? How did you discover that you had this? Jerry, it was like I got struck by lightning. Um, it was, I woke up one morning with a pain in my head that was so sharp and so shocking uh, that I really, it made me pay attention. And I literally, I went from a very healthy, very active life to being chronically, critically unwell in a moment. Mm. And what happened was this lesion was growing in my brain and spinal column. And as it grew, your skull is a contained environment. So it crushed all these nerves. So it was the nerve damage that is irreparable. Mm. And um, so I have neuropathy in my hands and feet and then chronic pain. And so, you know, I, every, you know, twice a day I have to take medicine, but when I have that medicine in my palm of my hand, I look at it and I say a prayer of gratitude for the doctors and the pharmacists and the scientists and the researchers and the people who did clinical trials because they made this possible that I can get relief. And I think I'm, I'm grateful that I can get relief relief. It's never a hundred percent. Um, but I understand that I'm going to be living with pain forever. And I wanted to make sure that happiness and chronic pain can coexist. That's really awesome. And it, it, you know, it's such an inspiring, it's inspiring for you to say it. It's more inspiring because we know that you're living it. And of course you're communicating it and sharing these thoughts and feelings throughout the course of the books that you've written. Um, I want to, well, well, let's just talk about them real quick because, uh, we want to at least put, put them out there. And of course you have your new book that is out this it's, it's out, right? It just came out. It just came out. It's, uh, it's called wise up right here and, um, whoops, wise up, uh, it, Oprah named it, um, a top 10 title of 2022 and the post named it the best title of the month. Um, and uh, it is immodest of me to say how proud I am of this, but one of the ways that I navigate my life is uh, through having a philosophy for living. And I am really inspired by the, the stoic philosophers. And um, the thesis of this book is, if you make beautiful choices, you will make a beautiful life. And when I read that, it just reverberated through me like a firecracker in a silverware drawer. I'm like, yes, make beautiful choices. And essentially, we are the sum of our choices. And I feel like this is a very, I, I, I wanted to share Stoicism, which is essentially uh, a very practical, practical, easy, uh, very alive philosophy. It was written 
2,000 years ago, yet it reads as if the ink is still wet. But the basis is we can't control what happens. We can only control how we respond. So in order to make this fun and lively, um, I wanted to write each chapter as a letter because I wanted the reader to feel this intimacy. I mean, you're allowing me into your head to share my words, to speak through you, to you through this book. Mm -hmm. So um, each chapter is written as a letter and it's meant to be swallowed whole like a clam, like just each little um, letter. And, um, and it's, I've got to say, it just, having the stoic wisdom gave me a framework to build upon my life. And it's taught me to be grateful. It's taught me to um, be resilient. It's taught me um, how to deal with failure and setbacks. Mm -hmm. So I highly recommend checking in, checking in with the Stoic philosophers. And, you know, what I was stumbling through and trying to allude to before is this is actually your latest book. Um, mm -hmm. But those of uh, those who want to really check out what's been in your head and what you've kind of released from your head to the world over the course of a, a number of years can go back and check out um, other other books that you've written, Model Patient, My Life as an Incurable Wise-Ass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, clearly I, I appreciate and I think your readers appreciate the fact that there's a light touch with everything you do. You're teaching us and you're, you're inspiring us, you're enlightening us, but you're not weighing us down with uh, a lot of preaching so to speak. You're, mm -hmm. you're uh, treating everything, including your own life with a sense of humor. Also 2004 is a slob in the kitchen mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, backbone living with chronic pain without turning into one. That's, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's, I, I appreciate the laughter and I mm -hmm. think those, especially those who are maybe experiencing similar things in their lives and looking to you for inspiration uh, above or at least as important as everything inside the book, just that general sense of laughter that you're you're providing along with it, I think is a really important ingredient to everything you're doing. Is it is it as important for you as well to be able to not only not only put this stuff out into the world, but to kind of make your make yourself laugh a little bit and keep oh. things light for yourself? Absolutely. Uh, Lord Byron said always laugh when you can. It's cheap medicine. And I absolutely believe that. Um, and it's, it's funny because I am speaking and in, engaging with many philosophers uh, around the world and doing panels with them. And they're like, how come you find all the fun stuff about like <laughs> philosophy? Like I've been studying this for 50 years. And I was like, because I'm looking for it and you, you will find what you're looking for. And I mean, I love that uh, Seneca says, you know, always take a lighter view of things for it's more human to laugh than lament. Um, and uh, I, that's, that's what I wanted to encapsulate in Wise Up is this radiant, lively, alive method of framing your life is here for us. You know, 
I read this book about uh, self-help and it said that one of the reasons self-help doesn't work is because the reward center of your brain lights up just for buying the book, not for actually reading it or changing your practices. The same thing with diet books. They're essentially entertainment. Yeah. Like diet books and self-help should be in entertainment because if you enjoy them, fantastic. Um, I just think that uh, classical philosophy, especially the Stoics, offer us such a clear and accessible way to uh, outline your life. Mm -hmm. No, it's, <laughs> you know, I've got... <laughs> I've got this book, You Are a Badass, sitting right in front of me as you say that. I, I am not the one who bought it, mm -hmm. but um, absolutely resembles that remark. The purchase was the accomplishment. <laughs> Reading um, it, a bonus, and I don't think any action happened after that. But <laughs> it's uh, it's really something to think about, you know, about, um, or I guess when and what makes us feel like we've like we've done something satisfactory and maybe maybe pushing a level or two beyond that might be a good idea. Mm -hmm. And that, that's what I love. Like the Stoics are saying, and other, my, one of my favorite quotes from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was he said, you know, you don't have to take the whole staircase. Just take the first step in faith. And I think that's so wise. Like that's what I love about reading classical wisdom. And this is a great primer to begin. Um, yeah. Don't, you don't have to, like, um, it's not about changing your life. Hopefully, you know, you're, 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 you're doing well, you're existing. This is about, and I find the Stokes, it's about enhancing your life. Why is up? I, I have filled every page with a laugh or a crackpot fact because in letters, you want to be entertaining. And um, like the reason why we use margins when we're writing, and even digitally, when we're writing a text or an email, there are margins. Yeah. Well, it comes from like, like ancient times when we wrote on scrolls, rats would nibble the edge of the paper. Hmm. So they realized if they just gave a certain section of the paper to the rats and then wrote in between those margins. So I love that, you know, every, we use this device forever and it's essentially rat food every time <laughs> you will, when you, next time you write an email, you're going to see it and you'll be like, oh, this is digital rat food. But then again, if you're using a mouse with, on your laptop, then it might work out. See, I, I feel like if I were to ever write a book, I would need to now just call it rat food because that's <laughs> lowering the bar of expectations. And uh... <laughs> Dude, look at in this conversation, the Stoics have already enlightened you with wisdom. Again, lower expectation, except that we are human, except that we are, you know, frail. I mean, I love um, Aristotle said, it is expected that unexpected things should happen. I mean, the problem is we don't expect problems. Uh, my kid is a hockey goalie and he's been playing at a very competitive level for 12 years okay. and he's a goalie. And uh, I realized that if I worried about him every time he went out on the ice, <laughs> then I would decant his joy. I would be the one who would be ruining it for him. Yeah. 
So I had to figure out a way to find a way to be supportive and not allow essentially my anxiety to ruin mm -hmm. his experience. And, and Jack said, you know, I think you've done a good job because, you know, Aristotle did say worry is misuse of the imagination. <laughs> we have a, uh, a tradition in our house where we don't have any technology at the table and our family meal is breakfast because dinner doesn't work. And so, you know, we, I'm, I make a nice breakfast. I get up and make it nice because this is our version of dinner because my husband works late and my son has all these sports events. Mm -hmm. And then no tech at the table, just philosophy books and the sports pages. So if you don't feel like talking, fine. But I figured, mm -hmm. you know, if there's an opportunity to just get a little bit smarter at the breakfast table, and I can't tell you the incandescent pride that it gives me when my son <laughs> parrots back a quote from uh, the ancient philosophers. I, I don't think I've ever heard Aristotle quoted within the context of talking about hockey before, but that's really, <laughs> really cool. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, look, um, we've kept you for a really long time. And again, we've barely scratched the surface of, of everything you're doing, everything you've done, everything you will be doing. Uh, we want to talk about the book again. It's it, it was just released this month. Wise up, irreverent enlightenment from a mother who's been through it. Of course, Kef, uh, Karen Duffy, Duff. Um, so cool to talk to you and have you blow our minds today. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, my fellow Jersey tomato. <laughs> and uh, I'd love to come back with a, um, when our new book, when our new um, film comes out, especially because it was uh, filmed uh, in the United States in, in New Jersey. So that, it'd be a great thing to share. That would be really cool. I'd love to talk more about that. Um, and that's coming out later this year, right? Yes. So is there any, do you do social media? Is there any- yes. Where, so where would you like people to watch for news about you, follow you, and and stalk you, essentially? Right. Um, uh, Twitter is at DuffyNYC. Instagram is at DuffLambros. And uh, there is a new website called KarenDuffyStoic.com. Ooh. Wow. So. I like the fact that you're going in, you're diving deeper into the website direction while others are dropping that aspect of it. I like it. I like it. I, I like it yeah. too. Yeah. I'm old school. Yeah. And uh, so give it a shot. And uh, yes, I think Wise Up is a great gift for moms for Mother's Day. Um, so consider your shopping done. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> on behalf of all of us, thank mm -hmm. you. And uh, just in general, on behalf of all of us, Thank you for being here, man. We, uh, we're definitely going to set it up. We're going to have a larger conversation about the movie and we're going to work in a lot of other, all things, all things, Karen Duffy, all things Duff, because we got lots more questions. <laughs> so thank you thank so much. Thank you so much, Jerry. Great to see you, man. You Take too. care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.